Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Carolyn Murray. Carolyn is the head coach of the Canadian Para Triathlon team and is an ex-Olympic triathlete herself in 2008. So welcome to the podcast, Carolyn. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. Well, I'm glad that we've at least got you post-world championships rather than in the frenzy of pre-world championships. Can you start us off with telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into coaching paratriathlon? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm the head coach in Triathlon Canada for the para team, and I've been in that role since 2014. I had no experience in para sport prior to that, so I've been on a steep learning curve and I'm continuing on that now. Um, Mm -hmm. I did coach on the development side for six years prior to that. And then, as you mentioned, I was an athlete, competed in 2008. So I was in the sport myself for Mm -hmm. nine years. And my background from school is kinesiology. And I did study acupuncture, which I haven't really used. That's probably about it. I'm a mom of two. And uh, live base, I'm living, living in Victoria, BC. That's where our um, national center is. But uh, the athletes I coach are across Canada. All right. So you've got athletes that, you know, that you're coaching remotely? Yes. So there's two athletes based in Victoria, one athlete from the farthest east in Halifax, one's in Montreal, another in Winnipeg, and then one in Calgary. So, um, mm. and all different impairments. So it's, it's lots of fun and keeps me really busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, can you outline what paratriathlon is in terms of what is the nature of the sport? How long are the distances that are raced? And I believe at the re- most recent World Championships, they brought in a relay event. Is that right? They did, yes. So that's a new exciting ad. Hopefully it will happen in the 2028 Games. So mm-hmm. paratriathlon is quite new in the Paralympic Games. So 2016 and the Rio Paralympic Games were the first time that paratriathlon was added in. So we compete in swim, bike, and run, as in the Olympic side, and the distance is always a sprint. So it's a 750 swim, 20K bike, and a 5K run. Mm-hmm. And the categories that are eligible for paratriathlon, there's two wheelchair categories for standing, starting PTS 2 to 5, and they're based on severity of impairment. And then there are three visually impaired categories. Mm-hmm. I guess... It means that you're training for three different sports. How do you manage that training as both at home and also for the athletes that you're coaching that are remote, bearing in mind with those differences in impairment types? How, how do you work around varying the, the training program to cater for those different impairments? So it's a constant learning curve. Um, <laughs> by no by no means am I an expert in this field. It's a lot of communication. That's that's a big requirement and figuring out what each athlete's environment looks like. What do they have available to them as far as a training facility? How close is it? What does it look like? So I think probably the the big piece is understanding an athlete's day to day and their accessibility to what the training is with the three sports being involved. So of course, as on the Olympic side, a lot of the athletes have smart trainers and their bikes on trainers. Our visually impaired athlete has a treadmill in her home mm-hmm. so that she ha- can have some level of independence. So it's very much an individual pr- approach. So there's three sports. And then I would say 
six different sports within that because there's six different impairments that I'm actually coaching at this time. So each athlete needs to be addressed individually. Their program are some overlap, but probably that is the biggest difference than on the Olympic side where you've got maybe six females varying gaps and, you know, strengths and weaknesses, but the overall program is quite similar versus Mm. on this side, the varying challenges or day-to-day looks quite different. And so there is not a lot of overlap in, in how I program for each athlete. It's really based on what environment they have around them and trying to set up an optimal plan that they can execute and actually improve upon as opposed to just, this is what it takes to be a fast triathlete. It's very much an individual approach. Mm-hmm. And it's you know relatively new sport at the Paralympic level. So do you have a number of athletes who've been triathletes for an extended period of time or is it more that they're coming into triathlon from other sports at the moment? It's a bit of a mix. So I have one athlete who was a Paralympian for swimming, went to three games herself in para swimming, and another athlete who started triathlon at the age of 13. And so mm. there's a huge variety. And it also depends on when some of these athletes, their impairments are congenital, and some of them are accidents that have now changed their lives to become para-athletes with with a different type of disability they hadn't experienced prior to. So Mm. their sport experience, you know, maybe has an impact, but wasn't wasn't directly related. So a wheelchair athlete that I work with, her injury was about four years ago, four and a half Mm. years ago. And so she was involved in sport, but not at a high performance level. But obviously what that looked like and how it looks now is quite different. Yeah. Okay. And the physiological demands, do you do a lot of physiological testing on the athletes? It's obviously, I mean, how would you describe the physiological demands of paratriathlon? So I think other than our wheelchair athletes, where obviously the demand is all upper body, hmm. the other athletes as far as far as testing and how we would assess them is quite similar. So we would do a repeated time trial on the bike, for example, we'll do lactate testing in the pool. So a lot of the similar types of protocols that would be done on the Olympic side, because of all the individual assessment and how complex some of the athletes days look like, we are very simple in our approach. So instead of, you know, going through the whole gamut of, you know, repeated VO2 or regular lactate testing or doing a a lot of testing, we are very simple in our approach just because I think there's already a lot a lot of detail that the athletes are trying to manage in their day-to-day so everything's quite deliberate and we started doing at the very beginning like just a very simple like 30 second and a 10 minute uh, effort on the bike and that was I actually borrowed or was lent that protocol from uh, British Triathlon as a simple test that we could do for entry-level athletes coming in And so that's something we've actually used quite a bit because it's very simple to do, can be repeated. So we do do some some testing, but we keep it quite simple. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the advent of the more connected electronically, you know, the indoor trainers like Swift systems and other systems where there's a lot of interconnection between, say, the coach and the athlete, 
do you think that's helping in terms of more of that remote coaching these days? Because it used to be that, you know, pe- you might have an indoor trainer, but it wasn't connected up to anything electronic. And so you just simply had to report back to you, your coach, maybe what your heart rate was, for example, and maybe maybe a power output. But do you find that these electronic systems are actually helping with the type of training and, and monitoring the training programs better? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of Zwift, particularly because we can join as a group and mm. no matter what power the athletes are pushing, they can actually become a group and ride together. And they've just recently added a hand cycle avatar, which is super exciting. Um, oh, cool. Because uh, then it distinguishes, you know, what when these wheelchair athletes are, are absolutely smashing it, but the power maybe doesn't showcase that, right? And mm. so they, they've just added that. So absolutely, it's a, it's a huge tool that I use especially for the athletes being remote and you know last year I actually bought a smart trainer so that I could join in and understand what was happening on Zwift and be part of that too and instead of being on Zoom Mm -hmm. being a bit more of a fitness instructor I I could (laughs) uh, that's not necessarily my calling is uh, yelling out and and cheering on as we go but (laughs) we do some of that because the the one thing with Zwift is that it is accessible for our VI athletes so hopefully that can be something that is put in in the future. It's it's probably not too challenging, but there are some steps that need to happen so that the screen reader actually opens it up for a VI athlete to join in. So because we have that limitation, we still do a bit of Zoom and kind of Zwift together, but it brings everyone together and and the, da- the data that comes out of it and the understanding of how the athletes are going through the workouts and whether they're actually you know, executing it the way that it's intended and how they're managing it, having all that information, especially when I'm not there, is really important. Mm. And is there anything similar to that for a treadmill or is it really just in the cycling realm at the moment? So I know that Zwift does have uh, a run component and I, I haven't really looked into it, to be honest, because really only our VI athlete uses a treadmill regularly. Mm. The rest of the athletes are, I mean, it depends on the weather, I suppose, of where they are in Canada, but they try to run outside or even on an indoor track as opposed to being on the treadmill. So Mm -hmm. I haven't explored that avenue of it too much. We're basically just using the treadmill speeds and heart rates and and RPE. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the common nutrition issues that you've found with your athletes? Are there anything that is pretty common throughout in terms of paratriathlon or does it seem to vary according to male female for example or the impairment type so i would say in general the nutritional challenges would be the same as any triathlete our distance is sprint so the time out racing is approximately an hour so mm-hmm. any event that is about that amount of time I think the the challenges within the event itself are are not much different I would say day to day probably the bigger challenge is around time to prepare food so mm-hmm. you know for an athlete who for example has an arm impairment and maybe has one functional hand to prepare a meal or an athlete who has a visual impairment, then the time it takes to make a meal that for another individual would be maybe it's double the time. And so when you're hungry after training, there is a risk of underfueling or missing that window, or maybe just making choices that aren't the best choices because they're faster. 
Yeah. Um, and so I think those are things that our nutritionist has worked very closely with the athletes to, to try to support their space and be able to have the right nutrition, but also understanding that some days, and so, you know, planning ahead and making meals that can be warmed up, for example, or having some pre-made meals that are there ready to go, which is really not anything different than most athletes because mm. most athletes that have a heavy training load at the end of the day don't really feel like cooking a meal or preparing either but it does take more time um, yep. and so that's one piece and I think the other one definitely with our athletes that any athlete that has a spinal cord injury depending on the level there is some digestion changes that happen and so understanding that the sensitivity to foods is higher. And so mm. willingness to either try new things or eat at different times, that window for eating is is quite particular. And so figuring that out, again, with working with a nutritionist, we're fortunate to have someone fantastic to work with. And so I think those are probably the, the most different pieces that need to be considered to make sure the athletes are training and fueling and recovering properly and then be able to have the nutritional needs they that are optimal especially for a race do you find that when they come into the sport that the athletes already have a fairly good nutrition knowledge or do you feel as though that's perhaps not as well developed as a as you would expect it to be in a similar aged able-bodied athlete I think that really varies. <laughs> so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say any, a general statement on that. I, I just think, I think it depends on the support system each individual has had. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you're traveling probably more now than you used to be in the past. There's more events that are available. Do you find that that travel is more challenging with those impairment types just from you know maintaining their nutrition needs i think the amount of detailed preparation that's needed is higher so mm -hmm. understanding what restaurants are around the hotel for example and not just sort of looking and saying oh there's a couple places to eat finding out in detail what's available and knowing especially in the last couple of years where airport arrivals are not as quick as they used to. Mm. Um, I think that yeah. with the COVID testing, that some a lot of that has dissolved, but even going to Commonwealth Games this year and going to Yokohama, for example, there was still a significant wait time once we arrived. Mm. And so making sure that there's enough snack foods and prepared foods that the athletes travel with that they know they can digest and don't have issues with. So I think it's just, it's a lot of pre preparing ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Once we're there, the athletes now that they've traveled enough and I think the more travel you do the more you understand then there's a better sense of calm and understanding what you need but uh, there is definitely a learning curve that continues to be challenged with each country having different types of foods but the support staff we have really do go into quite detail in preparing the athletes so that they are ready yeah, even with the time changes to Mm. figure out the optimal times to eat and and having that detailed level does make a big difference in not having issues once you get on the ground and as a coach and you know you have to be responsible for setting say the time frame for for coaching when you are together whether it's in a camp situation or whether you're traveling has there been things that you hadn't really recognized when you first started 
as a para triathlon coach that are completely different frameworks that you have to set up compared to working with able-bodied athletes? I think probably the two things would be the time to run through a training session, just mm-hmm. arriving there, getting set up, completing the session, coming back is longer and the logistics to get there sometimes are, are more with equipment, traveling with tandems and hand cycles and that kind of thing is, is a lot more planning. Mm-hmm. So I think just recognizing that it's not just, okay, we have an hour swim and that's what I've allocated in in our day in the morning for example and then the nutrition kind of plans around that it's actually more like two hours and so understanding that the recovery time maybe isn't as optimal because it just takes a bit longer to get to and from sessions and and get set up and I think the second piece is just recognizing this has taken me some time that I need extra help and extra hands because Mm -hmm. there is more equipment and there whether it's a safety standpoint and making sure there's more markers out if we're doing a bike ride, for example, and having enough vehicles and and people around. And that's been, I think I was used to, and my background is having a single coach there and managing everything. And that's Mm -hmm. okay, but definitely not optimal. And so bringing in more staff to make sure that the athletes are supported optimally has been a change over the years. And do you get well supported from the Federation or from the you know, Canadian sports system for that? Absolutely. I'm, we're very fortunate uh, as a program being a core sport with On the Podium. So we receive excellent funding to be able to support the a- Athletes Optimal. And we work with several sport institutes across Canada. So Halifax, Montreal has an INS there. Mm-hmm. And Winnipeg has a sports center. Calgary has a, a sport institute. And then, of course, in Victoria, where I am, is the Sport Institute Pacific. So I lean on all of those hubs. And mm-hmm. we do have a decent-sized staff that travels with us. And it seems sometimes that we have more people than we need, but every single person has a clear role and are definitely utilized when we travel. And so having that be something that's supported financially is critical. Mm-hmm. And what about countries that you see that don't have that level of support? How do you feel? Do they have to use a lot more volunteer sort of personnel or how do you see them functioning? Because it, it is becoming a more widespread amongst a, a much wider range of countries, isn't it? Absolutely. I think, you know, particularly when it comes to equipment, we are very fortunate. We have a world-class mechanic that travels to all of our key events. And so you can imagine if an athlete arrives with a specific piece of equipment and something's broken and needs to be replaced, then mm. that's quite stressful and, and really challenging. And so having someone like that on your staff is very helpful. I mean, the high level races, of course, usually offer that kind of service, but it does put a lot of pressure on the athletes themselves from countries that don't have a large team around them to mm. understand they have to be self-taught. You know, They have to be a mechanic. They have to understand their cooling protocols and and so it is a big demand on people that are assisting or coming with with this big team and maybe small staff that that's a tough scenario and so we definitely recognize how fortunate we are to have a strong team around us and the athletes absolutely appreciate what they have Mm -hmm. as well yeah and you mentioned there the cooling protocols. I know that some of the races that you've been to, the big races in terms of the Paralympic Games, in particular in Tokyo, and 
the more recent world championships have been in pretty warm locations. What have you found to be some of the best strategies for keeping the athletes cool? So I think it starts at home before we travel, understanding what works for each athlete. And that's from, you know, a nutrition standpoint, what they can tolerate during what kind of electrolyte, for example, they can actually tolerate when they're under stress. So getting an understanding of what their sweat rates are, all those pieces at home. And so we always will do in a, in a very hot race, we'll do a five day protocol, which is kind of something that's, it's not a secret by any means It's done by many athletes. So having that 90 minute session for five days in a row. So going through that and then also doing the post-training cooling Mm -hmm. so that the athletes understand what helps them cool down. So all those sessions have multiple purposes. One is around getting in that target temperature and, and starting to adapt, but also to understand their hydration status post. So getting rehydrated and looking at their USG levels every day during that. So getting mm-hmm. those really like detailed pieces around how much fluids they can take in and what kind of electrolyte they prefer and what actually helps them cool down. So, mm-hmm. you know, ice vests are obviously quite a common tool, but for them, do they feel better with, you know, a neck towel or do they want something on their head? And so obviously it's not just about that perceived temperature or thermal discomfort. I won't call it comfort, um, (laughs) but that is a big piece of it, right? The mental part is is really important. And so if the athletes have a clear plan and understand what works for them before we go, I think then they can be really confident in not trying something new on site. The other thing that we found really useful is is within the pre-cooling. So we have this blow up pineapple pool that we travel with everywhere and just fill with <laughs> ice water. And so not every event allows that or, or has the access to be able to do that pre-race, but definitely post-race getting in those ice tubs is, is huge for the athletes to be able to recover quickly, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's after training or after races. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the 90-minute sessions. What sort of temperature range do you aim for for those 90-minute sessions? So they, I presume that they're done indoors mostly with a some degree of a controlled temperature? Yes, yeah, so we have a – each hub has a slightly different setup, but in Victoria there's a trailer that can be set at any temperature you want. The humidity will vary based on how many people are in there, but mm-hmm. it depends on the conditions that we're – looking to face so in Tokyo we were pushing kind of a higher higher temperature but the target temperature that the athletes are looking for with their core temp pills that they're taking is 38 and a half so Mm -hmm. 38 and a half to 39 depending on what their effort is so we have a treadmill and then their stationary bikes are inside this trailer it's not very motivating space and not super fun for the athletes not not a great view (laughs) no it's not we do have a window there but they you know get some music going and and so in that space they will use that but sometimes depending on the air temperature we can go outside and wear extra clothing and then we also Mm -hmm. do use the pool the warm pool in Mm. addition as one of our sessions so we've done a lot of variety within I think I don't think we've had any single five-day protocol be exactly the same because it's always a challenge of maximizing that heat adaptation but also preparing for the race that's coming Mm. and so if we're putting all of our attention into that heat and not necessarily getting the quality training then then we've missed something but we also have to 
respects the energy cost of being in the heat. So it's, it's a constant kind of, I guess, change of puzzle, if you will, to figure out the best formula. So the athletes are continuing to stay sharp, but also, you know, recovering enough between those heat sessions. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually, you know, a, a really important point because I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, you just do a heat a session in the heat, but you do the same training session and maybe the same training block. But actually, you've got to consider the heat to be an, an additional training stressor and requiring a different level and degree of, of recovery afterwards. So I think it needs to be really well managed that you know how you set those training loads and what the goals of those sessions are absolutely and I think setting the it's similar to altitude where you really have to sort of throw your regular parameters out the window and Mm -hmm. figure out how you adapt and so you can't expect to go directly to altitude and run the same pace you would at a you know tempo effort than you would at sea level which is where we are so it's a big shift up it's the same idea and we don't necessarily put specific parameters like you'll be, you know, 10 seconds per case lower on this effort or anything like that, but just having an understanding that it will be different and the feeling will be different. And so not being so harsh on expectations within paces of whether it's swim, bike or run, like I think mm-hmm. it's uh, it sets the athletes up for disappointment and then lo- they lose confidence as opposed to gain confidence, which is often close to a race. And that's the opposite impact mm-hmm. that you really want to have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what do you think you've learned the most over the last, you know, it's been oof, eight years now since you've been the head coach? <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's that's gone fast, hasn't it? It sure has, yeah. When I, wrote, <laughs> when I wrote it down, just writing some notes, I was like, wow, that's actually, wow, okay. It seems like I just started because of, I'm still learning every single day and figuring out new things and figuring out things I should have done differently or want to change. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it has been eight years. So yeah. So to answer your question, what I've learned the most is that the environment is probably the biggest impact that a coach can have on an athlete's success and just creating a space for them to feel supported feel safe feel like it's fun uh, having a level of enjoyment having a sense of calm creating that space is absolutely critical to allowing the athletes to thrive Mm. the pieces around training the details uh, the planning the logistics of course those are all critical and I'm very fortunate to have lots of support on those to make sure that those are lined up and I'm I like to plan a lot so I think that also all helps but <laughs> if we don't create the that positive space I don't think the athletes would be able to thrive and actually have this success that they are capable of so that's something that I probably always believed but didn't really recognize as much as I have in reflection and especially I think with Tokyo being delayed by a year we really all had to stop and pause and, and look at why we were doing what we were doing and and going through that Mm-hmm. really helped us as a group here look at the culture and what values we all have and and why as a group do we support each other and celebrate each other's successes why does that work so well and and so I think that's something that I don't think that's specific to parasport it's just the the athletes I've been fortunate to work with have been very open to that dialogue and willing mm-hmm. to support each other and 
they've been the piece of what, you know, why the program's grown and become successful. Mm. Wow. I think it, you know, it's, it, it's certainly interesting to be able to have that time to reflect. And I think certainly that year extension with Tokyo enabled a lot of people to reflect and be able to look at, well, what are some of the key things that really makes this work and, and or what can we do over this time to really harness the extra time that you have? And I think some programs did that really, really well and others just weren't able to. And I think, you know, it sounds like you've done a lot of reflection, which has been really, you know, positive for the athletes. Have you had some new athletes come in in the last couple of years and how do you then introduce them to that culture and is that driven more by the other athletes in the program? That's a great question. It's both. I think the athletes that are have been in the program for a period of time are absolutely the ones that now drive that and continue by you know their conversations by their reactions by their you know how they show gratitude so they set an example but it, but as well there's several conversations with new athletes coming in and just creating that space and understanding of what's important to the group mm-hmm. and how much value they would add to it so i think it's it's both but they definitely are the ones day to day that would would champion that and be leading by example. And I believe if behaviors or responses were not within kind of what we stand for as a group, they would probably speak out and and continue to try to support what's there because they all believe that it you know helps them thrive and creates a space that they want to be part of. Mm, that's super cool. So do you have any recommendations for potential paratriathlon coaches how do they get into coaching paratriathlon what are your recommendations to them well I think first of all if anyone has any interest then just jump in with two feet because Mm -hmm. it is a space that I truly feel like it's a privilege to be part of and to be able to be in you know with these athletes and share the journey of athletes that are so resilient and motivating and inspiring just by doing what they do every day like they they just that's that's who they are. I, I think that's something that is quite unique and and really special to be part of. So there's my pitch to say mm-hmm. jump in. <laughs> and the other piece that I think is really positive in my experience is that across the board in parasport, coaches are open to sharing. There's mm-hmm. no secret. I don't want to tell you of, at, at any level in in every sport that I've actually had the opportunity to interact with, and so simply just sending a message to, you know, whatever country the coach is from, maybe the head coach or whoever's involved and opening the conversation, I would guarantee that that coach would make time because there aren't that many para coaches across all the sports, especially in paratriathlon. We as a coaching community are always open to bringing new people in. And I'm fortunate enough to be on the paratriathlon coaching working group with world triathlon and you know i can say that all those coaches that i have i'm able to converse with and dialogue with are just an open book and and really truly support each other and so that environment is very welcoming and for myself when i started uh, i really like i said i had no para experience whatsoever 
Mm -hmm. I knew the sport of triathlon at a certain level. Yeah. Always have learned to, you know, space to grow and learn more. But I just surrounded myself and with people who knew more than me, and I still do that and and <laughs> you know seek them out, whether it's in Rio sitting on the bus, but you know by beside the paraathletics coach or calling up the para Nordic coach and asking questions and just being in in environments that I can learn. And I've never had anyone say they don't want to share or they don't have time or they're not interested in kind mm. of opening their space and so I believe that any new coach would find that same inviting environment and most coaches that I've met well I'd say actually all para coaches I've met are are hungry to teach and mm. want to share their passion for yeah. sport yeah yeah I'd have to agree with that there's I have, don't think I've met any para coaches who who haven't been willing to to get other people involved. What about to potential paratriathletes themselves, whether they be, you know, youngsters who've been born with their impairment and, and enjoy sport versus people who may be coming into it a bit later in life after an acquired impairment? How do they get involved? And you know, what are some of the things that you'd recommend to them? Because, you know, in general, I'd say that triathlon as a whole is a very inclusive sport and always has been and and obviously that follows through into para triathlon as well so what would you recommend to potential athletes i think you're right it's an absolutely open space and a very welcoming space the challenge for sure is equipment with new athletes mm. and so organ probably connecting with that athletes federation is probably the best place to start depending on the country if they have you know in Canada we have provinces I know not every country has provinces but a regional person within maybe linked with their impairment so you know in, in British Columbia we have wheelchair sports for example mm -hmm. and so those are areas where equipment maybe could be helped with but in paratriathlon in particular because it's still new and fairly small, it may actually make sense to, to go to the federation, which is maybe the opposite path to some some other sport entries. But mm. they should be able to give some direction on where to go and help with that local piece. To be a paratriathlete does not mean you need your own lane or your own club um, that is only for paraathletes. I would say most clubs would be welcoming to a para triathlete and so joining a you know a master swim group or joining a local triathlon club is absolutely an option mm -hmm. and it's great for those coaches if they don't already have a para athlete to to learn about that and and you know being confident that that person would add to the group because they do they always mm -hmm. do and so there isn't one pathway which is probably why it can be challenging and a little bit overwhelming for a new athlete to come in. And so ideally the Federation has some kind of pathway set up or an entry point that can help them get started. Mm -hmm. But once you get in the door and you have a little help with equipment and get your feet into it or jump in with a tandem or get into a hand cycle, it's such a rewarding sport and is very challenging. So for someone who's driven and likes a challenge, it is the right sport. Mm. And how do you go about getting guides for your visually impaired athletes? That's a great question. I've been very lucky to have some amazing guides come through our programs. And it's just been athletes that have 
you know, raced on the Olympic side and a development level athletes who raced in Ironman events. So it's, it's a bit of a mix, but mm-hmm. since the profile of the sport has increased, the interest level has increased. And, and I would say when I started, it was really a kind of a desperate search, if you will, to someone <laughs> who was interested in doing that because it was an unknown. It was also a bit scary. It's quite a bit of responsibility, mm. but since the sport has grown, I believe the, I guess the impression of what it is to be a guide has really become something cool and mm. that's exciting. And I think, you know, having the, the guides that have come into the inter- international scale from all the countries are quite high profile athletes. So it's given it a profile mm. and now it's something that I, you know, I have quite a few athletes who've asked me, you know, if you need a, if you need a guide, I'm here. And so we've really not had a formal process because we haven't had to, but um, mm. it can be a challenge in finding that for me, it's really that right, right personality because you're racing. It's very exciting. It's very fast, but at the end of the day, you do have to take a step back and let the athlete complete the race. And it is about them. And so you are not in the spotlight. And so for an athlete who's raced at a high level, that sometimes is a difficult concept and not something that everybody everybody wants. So mm. understanding that and being okay with that is an important piece. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I I can see the pros and the cons of ex-top level athletes doing that because, you know, simply to be at that level in their own right has a certain, I guess, They've got to have a certain mindset around their performance and that's hard to hard to shift once you've been in that environment to having that mindset that's more inclusive of, of the other people around them. Absolutely. It becomes a team sport and mm. you know, as an individual athlete myself, mm. I uh, we're not really wired to be a team. <laughs> no. um, and so it is is something you really have to get your head around and be okay with and and see the benefits and the the gains that you just personally have by supporting someone else and it is definitely more of a selfless path than the Mm. typical individual athlete's uh, journey yeah wow awesome that's that's been fantastic and I really appreciate the time that you've given us and and your insight because I think it's really tough as a as a new coach coming into a, a relatively new program where everything's new and and no one really has led the the path before there's no kind of groundwork that you've got to pick up from and so you've really kind of jumped in both feet and swum (laughs) and and swum very successfully rather than a little bit of probably felt like that you were drowning along the way (laughs) at times thanks Liz yeah it's it's definitely been uh, quite a journey and I think probably the other thing just to make note of is that the approach I took right out of the gate was that these are athletes that want to perform. And so as opposed to seeing limitations or things that they couldn't do, I started with, this is where we want to go. And I need you as athletes to educate me on how we can adapt to get there as opposed Mm. to, well, I don't think we can do that. So I'm not going to try that. Mm. And I think that approach was something that the athletes really appreciated because they're athletes, they're individuals first, and they're humans. You know, of course, we look at everybody as a whole, but they are athletes and so how we get to where we where we do is maybe slightly different and 
you know, the day-to-day training, of course, looks slightly different for athletes that have different impairments, but they still want to push themselves as hard as they can. And so mm-hmm. understanding that, I think, was by default, not necessarily a plan. It was really <laughs> just how I, how I knew sport. Yeah. And so because I knew nothing about any of their impairments and how to approach it, it, it was it was an easier way for me to start. But I, but thinking back, it was probably the best way to approach it because that's exactly what those athletes wanted was to be mm. treated as high performance athletes and wanting to thrive and be be at their highest level as opposed to starting with their impairment and then working from there. Yeah, yeah fantastic. And I, I think that kind of is in line with how most most of the people that I've interviewed, either from a practitioner or a coaching perspective, that's pretty much what the consistent theme is, is that, you know, the athlete is a really integral part of the process and you can use what their knowledge about their own body and, and their impairment and their, their capabilities, you can harness that and then get them to help guide if you can tell them what you're trying to achieve help them guide you on what strategy might work and you know it's a give or take isn't it as you try a strategy oh that didn't quite work the same way so let's maybe sort of reassess that or adjust it a little bit and and try something (laughs) try something else exactly and that's it i'm i'm absolutely learning probably more from these athletes than I'm teaching them. So um, <laughs> they know their bodies way better than I do. And they, they know what their experience is. I will, I will never put myself in, in their position and say that I understand completely what their experience mm-hmm. is. So the only way to be able to relate to that is have them explain it to me and, you know, have that open communication and that, you know, creates that that needs to be an open relationship and a trusting you know that takes time to build yeah. build that rapport but mm. without that i'm i'm not going to be able to support them optimally without having the full picture yeah yeah fantastic caroline i have one more question for you which sure. no one no one gets to finish this podcast without answering it so what's your favorite okay. food <laughs> my favorite food okay definitely sushi ah uh, spicy tuna rolls in particular would probably be my favorite type of sushi yeah Ah, did you get many of them when you're in tokyo not really the gyoza (laughs) was good in the village i've had that daily but uh i didn't we didn't get to go out as you know yeah yeah. But this year in Yokohama, there's a one of one of my favorite sushi places is in Yokohama, so I was able to visit it um, this year, and I'll plan to go back in May. So, um, <laughs> although Victoria has pretty good sushi too, we're really we're pretty lucky here. So, yeah, cool, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, your experience, and and your willingness to be really open. I really appreciate it, and we'll look forward to seeing more things to come from Team Canada. Thank you, Liz. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I think Caroline's approach to starting her work with paratriathlon has been really important in terms of making sure that she has a really open mind and a really good communication strategy with the athletes because I think everyone's learning. Uh, There's not a lot documented and it's a really open space to develop your own strategies and open your mind to different ways of training athletes. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. 
If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and happy to hear any suggestions on people you'd like to hear from. I hope you join us next time when we talk to Chris Wilkins, who is a British paracyclist.